0: Exodus chapter 23, Exodus chapter 23, if you would flip there, please, we're not going to read it um, just at this moment, but we will in a few minutes, Exodus chapter 23, so leading up to uh, January. We've been been going through the book of Exodus. If you're new or newer with us, I'm going to give a little bit of a recap of where we've been and what we've covered. So if you haven't been here, that's okay. Not a big deal. (coughs) We've been looking at the themes in Exodus, so we're not going through verse by verse, but we're reading kind of bigger chunks of Scripture and just looking at some of the broad themes I decided to take the month of January off of, of Exodus so we could just kind of take a break from that. We had Alan Wilson here teaching, and uh, so now we're just kind of jumping back into it. Last time that we were in the book of Exodus, which was actually in December, uh, we, we basically hit the halfway point. Exodus has two pieces. The first, the first half of Exodus starts with uh, it tells you that, that Joseph and his brothers multiplied greatly in Egypt. And then the the first half ends when the children of Israel uh, reach Mount Sinai. And then the rest, uh, from about chapter 19 to 40, uh, the rest of the book is really at Mount Mount Sinai. So we kind of hit the halfway point. Exodus is a narrative, so it's a telling of a story. And it tells a story of how God keeps his promises and how he provides for his people. And Exodus is... A foundational book because it, it has served as a reference point for generations. The Book of Exodus and the things that happen in the Book of Exodus, the children of Israel throughout their generations, essentially uh, leading up to the New Testament, all look back to the things that happened in Exodus. It's written as a as a flag that's just put in the ground, like remember this. All right, remember that my promises to you, my promises to Abraham, my promises to you as a nation, were kept. Many of them were kept at this time that you became a great nation. Uh, there was a covenant between God and Abraham that I will make you a great nation, and that all the families of the earth, earth will be blessed by you. And the book of Exodus begins by saying that the children of Israel were made into a great, a great nation. So Abraham had Isaac, and Isaac had Jacob, and Jacob's name uh, was changed to Israel. So then he had twelve sons, and so he became the, the sons of Israel, or the, the children of Israel, see how that all fits together, and those 12 sons, they moved to Egypt because there was a great famine in the land, um, and Joseph was there before them, and the very beginning of Exodus tells a story, those the first couple of verses, that they went from those 12 sons and their families, and they multiplied to 2 million people, um, we can see that number essentially in Exodus chapter 12. So they they did. It happened. They multiplied as God had promised. Um, Exodus chapter 1 verse 8 says that now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph, and he was afraid of this vast group of people, and so he began oppressing them, and they became slaves. They weren't always slaves in Egypt, but they became slaves and oppressing them greatly, even to the point of infanticide, where they were, he was killing the babies as, as population control. Moses was born. He was miraculously saved, and he was raised in Pharaoh's home. However, Moses kills an Egyptian and flees into the wilderness, where he becomes a shepherd. And in the wilderness, Moses hears from God in the burning bush. The Lord said to Moses, I have seen... The affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, and I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians have oppressed them. So God appoints Moses as his spokesperson, as a prophet, and as a mediator or a moderator between God and his children. Moses speaks to Pharaoh, and he says, let my people go. You maybe know the story. Pharaoh says no. So nine plagues come and ravage the land. It's God's judgment pouring out on this pagan culture. And the tenth plague comes, um, which is a judgment by death. However, salvation was offered by the offering of a substitutionary death of the lamb. It was commanded to all. It was offered to all, even the Egyptians. But those who who participated in shedding of the blood of the lamb were saved. And that's the Passover celebration. Israel leaves. They plunder the Egyptians, as God told them to do. They took with them gold and fine jewels. And the Lord goes before them in a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And then Pharaoh, in fear and rage, pursues them. He thinks that they're trapped at the Red Sea. God takes his presence from before them, and he moves behind them, puts the the, uh, Egyptians in darkness, and he opens up the Red Sea where the children of Israel cross. The the, uh, Egyptians pursue. The Red Sea closes, and God defeats and destroys the enemies of God. After that, the children of Israel go to Mount Sinai. On the way to Mount Sinai, they grumble, they complain, they accuse God in gross ways. They said, you have brought us here to die, you have brought us here to kill our children. Why didn't you leave us in Egypt where we had things so much better and where we were thriving, which is not true. But God, in his kindness and his mercy and his grace, in spite of their rebellion, continued to love and teach and provide for them. Now, that brings us up to our, our last Lesson, which was back in December, so I'm not expecting you to remember all of that, all right? But all of that has happened throughout the course and the narrative of the book of Exodus. Where we were at at our last Exodus lesson is Moses went up to the top of Mount Sinai where he met with God, and God gave him the law, and it expounded on the covenant that he made with Abraham. And now he's expounding on the law as it, as it pertains to not only just Abraham, but the nation of Abraham or the people of Abraham, or the children of Israel. And what we saw there is we saw five holies. All right, so Moses is on top of the mountain. He's talking to God. He's a mediator, he's a moderator between God and man. And we see that God has specifically made a holy place, Mount Sinai. God is the one who's defined this. Uh, God met with uh, Moses at the burning bush at Mount Sinai. And he calls the people out of Egypt to come and serve or to worship me at the mountain, meaning Mount Sinai. So God has established a specific place that he says, I will meet with my people here. Not just broadly, not just kind of figuratively, not just in a spiritual set, but an actual physical manifestation of God on the mountain. There's a holy place. He says that he makes, I uh, will make you a holy nation as unto me. He says, I am a holy God, so therefore you must... Consecrate yourselves to me. This is not a come-as-you-are situation, but you need, to be, you need to cleanse yourself. You need to abstain from certain things to prepare yourself to meet with me. I am a holy God. He gives them the holy law, which is the Ten Commandments, which is the foundation on the principles by which God uh, sets out his commands. And then he gives five categories of holy living and holy society. And we kind of unpacked all that stuff in December, and it's just a, a brief run-through of where we are. So where we pick up now is this conversation between God and Moses is still going on in the mountain. All right, This conversation between God and Moses on the mountain includes a couple different back and forths between Moses and the people. So you have Moses talking to God, excuse me, God <laughs> talking to Moses, Moses talking to the people, and Moses goes up and down from the mountain a couple different times. Where we left off was, was God was saying these things to Moses. What we're picking up Right now, God is wrapping up this section with a promise. And then Moses comes down to the people. And Moses reports to the people what God has said. And the people said, we agree with these things. And a covenant is confirmed. So that's all the background. That's where we've been. We're on the mountain right now in the text. So Exodus 23, beginning in verse uh 20 23 20 what we're going to do is we're going to read the rest of this chapter and then chapter 24 which is only 18 verses so not as long of a text as we've read in the past so thanks for staying with me that's the history that's where we've been and we're back here now I'm reading from the ESV so if you would follow along behold I send an angel before you this is God speaking behold I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice and do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression. For my name is in him. But if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. When my angel goes before you and brings you to the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, and I blot them out, You shall not bow down to their gods, not serve them, nor do as they do, but you shall utterly overthrow them and break their pillars in pieces. You shall serve the Lord your God, and he will bless your bread and your water, and I will take sickness away from among you. None shall miscarry or be barren in your land, and I will fulfill the number of your days. I will send my terror before you and will throw into confusion all the people against whom you come, and I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. And I will send hornets before you, which shall drive out the Hivites and the Canaanites and the Hittites from before you. I will not drive them out from before you in one year, lest the land become desolate and wild beasts multiply against you. Little by little, I will drive them out from before you until you have increased and you possess the land. And I will set your border from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines and from the wilderness to the Euphrates. And I will give the inhabitants of the land into your hand, and you shall drive them out before you. You shall make no covenant with them and their gods. They shall not dwell in in your land, lest they make you sin against me. If you serve their God, it will surely be a snare to you. Chapter 24. Then he said to Moses, come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules, and all the people answered with one voice, and they said, All the words the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the law. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant, and he read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all of these words. Then Moses and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu and seventy of the elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven, for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God, and they ate and drank. The Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and wait here, and wait there, that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and their commandment, which I have written for their instruction. So Moses rose with his assistant Joshua, and Moses went up into the mountain of God. And he said to the elders, Wait here for us until we return to you. And behold, Aaron and Hur are with you. Whoever has a dispute, let him go to them. Then Moses went up to the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain, and the glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai. And the cloud covered it six days, and on the seventh day he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain, and Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. So we are in the midst of God speaking to Moses as Moses speaks to the people. And in this conversation between God and Moses, we essentially have three pieces. The first piece we talked about last time is the giving of the law and the giving of uh, the Ten Commandments. This middle piece is the uh, confirmation of the covenant. And next week, what what we're going to look at is uh, Moses goes back up on the mountain, and God gives Moses further instruction on what it looks like to live for me and to worship with me. So those three pieces. What we're looking at today is this promise that God makes at the end of 23 and the confirmation of the covenant. Now, I kind of want to move through this a little bit quickly, and I've tried to make some bullet points for us. There there are basically four pieces of this text that we just read. Four pieces of this text that we just read. The first is God is making a promise to his people on what he will do. And within this promise, God says, there are things that I will do. But there are also things that you must do, and there are also things that you must not do. So there's a promise that is made, and God is saying, I will do these things. It is uh, Exodus 23, uh, verse 20 through the end of the chapter. Listen to the things that God has said I will do. I've just kind of written them out so we can say them all together. God has said I will do this. (laughs) I will send an angel to guard you and to bring you to Canaan. My name is in him. I will be an enemy to your enemy. I will be an adversary to your adversaries. I will send an angel to go before you who will bring you to the land of the Amorites and Hittites and Perivites and termites and whatever, (laughs) all right? God says, I will blot them out, meaning I will kill them. Sorry. God says, I will bless your bread and your water, and I will take sickness from you. He says, "Uh, none will miscarry. None will be barren in your land, and I will fulfill the number of days of your days. I will send my terror before you. I will throw your enemies into confusion and I will make your enemies turn their back on you. This is halfway through the list. So there's a lot that God is saying I will do for you. I will send hornets before you, driving them out. I will not drive them out at once, lest the land become desolate. Little by little, I will drive them out. I will set your borders in specific places, the Red Sea, the Sea of the Philistines, the wilderness and the Euphrates. And I will give the inhabitants of the land into your hands. I will do these things. I will go before you. I will provide the way. I will be the one who does the work. I will be the one who defeats your enemies. I will give you health. I will give you fertility. I will provide. I will do, I, I will do it all. I will do it all. This is what you are not to do, and this is what you are to do. Now do these things. Pay, very, pay careful attention to the angel who I send before you and obey him. This is what you are to do. Obey the angel, says again which is the pre-incarnate Christ, which we won't get into all that, which is really cool. You shall utterly overflow them and break their pillars. So you should go in, conquer by my power, and overthrow their pillars or their places of worship. You shall serve the Lord your God, and you shall drive them out. You shall push them away. However, do not do these things. Do not rebel against the angel or the pre-incarnate Christ, for he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. You shall not bow down and serve their gods, nor do as they do. You shall make no covenant with them and their gods, and you shall not dwell, and you shall not or they, or they shall not dwell in your land, lest they make you sin against me, and if you serve their gods, it will be a snare to you. So basically, God is saying, I will do it all. I will give it to you. These are these are physical promises. These are not figurative promises. Alright? That you will go in. and and you will dominate by my power. Not yours, but it's all me, so I will do it. But you need to listen, and you need to obey, and you must not deny me. You must not worship their gods. So what happens is, is God speaks this to Moses, Moses speaks this to the people, and the people in one voice, as a congregation, as a nation, respond, and they say, all the words the Lord has spoken, we will do. Chapter 24. Verse 3, all the words that the Lord has spoke, we will do. This is repeated later in the text. So the people agree. They hear the promise, and the people agree. The next thing that happens is Moses, while he's off of the mountain, goes through the process of confirming the covenant. He makes an altar. There's a sacrifice of animals. Blood is spilt. Half the blood is put on the altar, and half the blood is literally spilt onto the people consecrating them. Moses builds an offer on altar in verses 4 through 8. Half the blood here, half the blood on the people. And he says, Behold, the blood of the covenant the Lord has made with you in accordance with all of these things. And then the fourth piece. God says, Come back up, Moses, to the mountain, and I will give this to you in stone. I will write this I, as God, will write this for you and give it to you to keep forever. I don't know if this is where the term written in stone comes from, but we use that all the time. You know, is this concrete? Is this for real? Is this, is this, is this where, where it ends? Like this is everything, right? It's not written in pencil. This is written in stone. And this, this, is, this is beyond symbolic here. But this is God saying, I have written these things. It is written in stone, and you are to keep it with you forever. So these tablets, and we'll see how this this story unfolds, but the tablets, another set of tablets, because these tablets break because of the golden calf, but the the tablets of the law are put in the Ark of the Covenant. And and the Ark of the Covenant was supposed to be with the people at all times. as a symbol of God's presence. There's a documentary in the 80s um, called uh, Indiana Jones, you know, in the in the in the uh, which one? Raiders of the Lost Ark. Yeah, and so you know they found the Ark of the Covenant, and it's in some government warehouse, you know. Um, but the the law was given, so the law was spoken. The people agreed. It was confirmed with blood, and then the law was given. Like this isn't just something you have to work hard to remember. This isn't just a song that you have to. To, to write so that you know, non, non-literal uh, cultures can remember this. And say, no, this is written in stone that you will have it with you forever in this context, physically. So the law was given. Now, seeing all this, the question that I want to ask uh, as we look at this text is, why is this important for us right now in 2017? What's the value? I mean, maybe maybe there's some history here that's kind of like, okay, that's cool. Or I see I see the symbolism of later the coming Christ and the Holy Spirit. Okay, um, the children of Israel. But but what is why is this really important for us to grasp this type of Old Testament content? Why is it important for us to be able to to take some of these understandings of of truly an ancient past and what what value does it have us on us today and to begin to try to answer that question as, as, as I was looking at this text, um, I think it's important for us to understand, and this is kind of a no-duh statement, but but sometimes the, the no-duh statements are statements that, as believers, we need to keep going back to and re-remembering and re-meditating on. That's, that is the fact that the core belief of the Christian is that there is a God, that we believe that there is a God, and that is... That, and, and the knowledge that there is a God, and then the further understanding of that, that, that God has communicated and he sent his son, and that God has made a covenant, that that is an incredibly valuable information. I mean, I mean, because the knowledge of God and the submission of the, of the fact that there is a God, and the submission to the, the will of God ought to, by definition in, in Scripture, and this plays out differently in every one of our lives, but it ought to change fundamentally everything about us. The knowledge that there's a God and the submission of your will to that God changes the way that you think. It changes the way you spend your your time and and where you go on your weekends, like the gathering of the believer. Like this might not be your best friends, but you still come here regularly, routinely, religiously. You know that that you give your money. And some people are like well, uh, I, you know funds are tight, and so well then why do you give? You know why do you give away before you? You know, the way you give, the way you serve, the way, the way you love, the way you deal with conflict, the way somebody legitimately wrongs you or sins against you or, or takes advantage of you. And the way you deal with that, the way you handle with that, the, the way, I mean, everything in the scope of life, the way you deal with tragedy, the way you deal with joy has to do with, with your conviction, your understanding and your core belief that there is a God. And that, and that matters and that matters. And so if, there, if all of these things are true and there's an actual covenant, meaning an understanding and a law given by this God to we who are not God, then that is, is just fundamentally important. So as a child of the 90s, there was a huge Christian T-shirt phase, fad thing that went out there, and it was lame. Okay? But I remember getting a T-shirt that I thought was cool. It looked like it had splattered paint on it, you know. 90s, all right, but it said, it said something like two things I believe that there is a God and you're not Him. <laughs> you know, like there's a witness, you know. <laughs> you believe in Jesus? Um, but that's a fundamental understanding. I mean, aside from the, the cheesiness of it, that there is a God and that I am not that God. And therefore, I must fall in submission to that God. Otherwise, I make myself God. So there's two options. Submit to a God if I believe in him or become that God in my mind. Through this covenant, this covenant is not a one of many covenants. This covenant is not like a contract that you might sign for work or if you're going to buy a house or a car payments on something. It's not one of those things where you check it out, and if it, all the facts aren't kind of in your favor, you're like, you know what, I'm going to wait for a better deal to come along. This isn't one of those things where you say, well, now, now is not the right time for me to buy a house, so I'm going to sign a contract later. This is, this is God saying, here it is. There's no plan B. Here is the covenant between me as God and you as man. So in this covenant, I'm defining, God is saying, I'm defining who I am and who you are. And with this whole list of holies that we had up here, I'm the one who is establishing holy, sacred, sanctified places. And I, what we talked about back in December was that holiness is never generated. Holiness must be infused by a holy force, okay? So if you are a people that is holy, it is because God has made you holy, not because you've made yourself holy, There is if there is a law, it becomes holy because God, who is holy, is able to infuse his holiness upon it. There's nothing sacred about Mount Sinai until God makes it sacred. So God is establishing, he's establishing the grounds for everything. The entire covenant, the entire contract is this is who I am, and this is who you are. Will Will you obey? If you do, you have everything to gain. This is, this is good. I am good, and I'm making you mine, but you have part of this covenant too. God never leaves it out there for us just to figure out. He never leaves us blind. He says, this is who I am, this is what I'm about, and this is the covenant. That's the Old Testament covenant. So, again, continue to ask the question, why? but why is this blood sprinkling on people, Mount Sinai, uh, uh uh, consuming fire, s- tablets of stone. I mean, that is out of our context. There's no call in Scripture for us to go to visit Mount Sinai as an act of worship. There's, there's no call on us to find the original Ten Commandments etched in stone. Uh, we don't sprinkle blood on people. That would be really weird. All right, so, so again, why, why, why? And continuing to add to the why question, which I think it's always good to ask why questions of the Bible— The fact that A, we believe that there is a God is a fundamental core belief, but also it's important for us to understand that history reveals context. All right, history reveals context. It's kind of interesting and kind of funny to think about my three and a half year old daughter, Evie. Her entire context of me and Lauren has no history, really. She doesn't know us. Or understand us as at one point for 30 some years of my life, I was a single guy, you know, or that I was a teenager at one point. All she knows is that we're just mom and dad. But I mean, if, if you do know our story, I particularly think that our story is cool and amazing, and to see how God worked in our lives as, as single people and in the homes that we were raised in and the areas that we were raised in and the way that God worked uh, through our friends and our cultures and our failures and our face plants and how God redeemed us and restored us and brought us together, and there's, there's a really cool understanding of who we are as a couple, and any, any couple could probably say that, but there's context that gives you great understanding for what is this relationship, and the same thing, another example could simply be America, I mean, if somebody knew nothing about the history of America, you could get a fundamental y- y- kind of understanding of America, just knowing that, like, okay, it's the land of freedom and opportunity, um, it's different than other countries. But standalone, it's just, it's just shallow, and you don't have a full understanding of how this freedom was fought for. This freedom wasn't always there, that people gave up their lives, and they've continued to give up their lives throughout so the course of our history, that we wrote a constitution, that we have a, a successive turnover of power uh, peacefully for 200-some years, which is un- unheard of in the culture of man, in the history of man. And so like understanding... where the The history of where we are now adds infinite understanding. So context is everything. Here's another simple, silly example. If you kiss somebody out of context, or without a context, it's weird, right? If you were just to kiss somebody without any context, it would be weird, it would probably be offensive, it might be considered uh, a crime, Um, sexual harassment, it would be just kind of icky, you know? But if I kiss my wife, there's a context there that gives it complete understanding and appropriateness and joy. So without context, it's it's distorted and it's bad. If you if you take a conversation out of context, then confusion confusion just is, is rampant. And good things don't usually result from confusion. So without context, everything is ultimately arbitrary. You following with me? So context is king, all right? History reveals context. If you take a simple thing like Sunday morning, this morning, everything here has a context. The fact that you're gathering here is not just a random, I didn't know what to do this morning, so I wandered here. There's a context for this. You know, there's a context for the worship songs that we sing because of historical um, events that have happened up to this point of, of who God is. You're giving teaching of the word, it all has a context. Without that context, it just doesn't make any sense. It's foolishness. Our God is a God of the ages, of history past and history future. God continues to reveal himself, and he continues to make uh, mankind aware of himself in a growing way. And what we have in this story is a point of context. That God is giving physical promises to a physical people for a physical fulfillment. And it's important for us to understand that, that these promises that we just read don't have direct application for us today. That it's context building information that bring us up to today. So in this setting, there was a God, our God, but he spoke physically to Moses and Moses took the very words of God to the people. And God made a physical promise to a physical group of people. The Israelites, it wasn't, it wasn't a figurative group. It was an actual, specific, um, from the line of Abraham people. And that those promises were physically fulfilled. That they did take the promised land. That they actually did defeat the Canaanites. That their borders did increase to the, the prescribed borders that, that are listed here. God is making a physical promise to a physical group of people that, that did reach a physical fulfillment. But what we see in hindsight, because we have this history and we have a growing understanding of context, what we see is that God is using these physical truths as a setup to point and direct the attention of mankind to a greater and better spiritual fulfillment of these physical promises in the past. That God is leading mankind to have a greater and better understanding of a spiritual fulfillment that is set up by the physical promises that were made to the children of Israel thousands of years ago. We can see this all throughout the Old Testament, but we won't go into all of those details right now. God is saying that this is great. My covenant with man is a good thing, and I am a good God, and you are my people, but this is only a shadow of the better things to come. So it wasn't bad. It was great. I mean, think about this. Their enemies were defeated. They were once slaves and oppressed, and their, their enemies were not only defeated, but physically destroyed. And God says, I will lead you to the promised land, the promised land. And again, this isn't this, this, this joyful you know, state of being, but an actual land. And you're going to defeat cities like Jericho. And the walls are physically going to fall. And then you're going to go in after the people are dead. And their idols and their places of worship are destroyed. And you're going to set up places of worship for me. And then you're going to live in their houses. I'm going to give it to you. And you're going to eat from their fields. You didn't plant them. You didn't cultivate them. I'm giving that to you. It's, it's, It's turnkey. But you have to follow my ways. I will do these things. I will give you health. I will give you provision. The land flowing with milk and honey Hebrews chapter 10 Hebrews chapter 10 verse 1 says since the law meaning this conversation between God and Moses and Moses and the people since the law was but a shadow of the good things to come this is in Hebrews in the New Testament since the law was has but a is but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities so we see a greater understanding, a greater context in the New Testament of how those physical promises are pointing to greater, better spiritual realities. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 5 says that they served, meaning in the Old Testament, a copy or a shadow of the heavenly things to come. That those were good and they were given by God, but they are, 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 are shadows and a vague resemblance of the greater things that I am bringing. So seeing this context, Let's see how the physical promises that God made to the children of Israel have a greater, fuller, better fulfillment in the new covenant, which is the covenant that we find in Jesus Christ. God says to Moses, I'm going to give you the land. I'm going to go before you. All right, I'm, going to, I'm going to defeat your enemies. I'm going to enable you to do these things. John chapter 14 is the, is the text that says, from Jesus, <clears throat> beginning verse 1, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms, and if it were not so, I would have told you, and I go to prepare a place for you. I, I just briefly mentioned this before, but in, 20, in chapter 23, verse 20, it talks about an angel will go before you and... Scholars and commentarians, commentary authors, pretty much uniformly agree that that is the pre-incarnate Christ. That Christ is going before the children of Israel to pave the way. And, and here, Christ himself, incarnate, speaking to his disciples, is saying, I am going before you still, but I am going before you to a greater, better reality of an eternal kingdom, which is heaven. Where you will not die, where you will not cry, where there will be no sickness, there will be no sadness, it will be heaven, it will be paradise on earth, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again, and I will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also, in the context of forever, that this isn't a for now or for the time being, but forever, 1 Corinthians ten thirteen says, no temptation has come unto mankind, except which God has allowed. And every time that we face a temptation, we are able to withstand it by the means of which God has given to us, that he has given us the tools and the weapons to live this life in a righteous way. Philippians 4.13 says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, which is uh, misused maybe more than any other verse in the Bible. And it's used by athletes all the time, right? I can do all things. I can win this game you know, for Christ, and it's not the context of saying that I can live this life because the tools and the weapons that God has then given me, that he is the one that is actually doing this, just like the promise that is made in the Old Testament, except in a better, more full way, that we are given hope and peace by the work of the Holy Spirit, we see later in John chapter 14. And as the children of Israel agreed, all that the words in, uh, uh, chapter 24 verse 3 all that the Lord has said we will do and we will be obedient is what the nation said well they did not they failed Moses went back up on the mountain he was there for 40 days and when he came down the people were on their face worshipping a golden calf throughout the course of the Old Testament in the ESV the words that are used are that the people hoard themselves out to other gods so they failed they failed. They said, "We will obey," but they did not. They were not able to, to, to continue that. They fail over and over in their submission to God. But what we have in Christ, in Philippians one six, it says that He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. And where Christ su- succeeds, He is able to take us in our failures, and we succeed through Christ. So when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, in uh, Matthew. I think it is Um, Jesus goes into the wilderness and he not only displays how you fight fight off temptation temptation but by fighting off temptation and succeeding in a perfect life that is without sin he's able to make up for the times when we do not succeed in temptation so he not only shows us the way of righteousness but then provides the way through his righteousness so when we meet God Face-to-face, if you're a believer and God has this questionnaire, why should you get in here? Which is, I don't really think that's the way it's going to happen. You say, well, I, I, I shouldn't and I can't. It's only because what Christ has done. So when God looks at you, he sees Christ. And so there is a fuller, better commitment that we are able to make only because of Jesus Christ. There, there's a confirmation of the covenant where Moses sacrificed the oxen. Half the blood was on the altar. Half the blood was on the people, the shedding of blood. In Hebrews chapter 9, verse 18, it says this. Not even the first covenant, which we're talking about, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood, that blood is required for the remission of sins. Verse 19, for when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to the people, he took the blood of the calves and the goats with water, It's scarlet and wool and hyssop, and he sprinkled both the book itself and the people, saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled the blood both on the tent and the vessels in worship. Under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus, it was necessary for the copies or the shadows of the heavenly things to be purified by these rites so of these rituals, but the heavenly things, meaning the better fulfilled promises, they have they have better sacrifices than these, for Christ has entered not into the holy place made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, the most holy place, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy place every year, with blood not his own, for then we would have had to have he would have had, have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once and for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man once to die, and after that the judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, he will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are waiting for him. That the sacrifice of Christ happened once and it didn't need to happen again. When we see the people sprinkled with blood, that began the ceremony that this has to happen continually to make up for the remission of sins. And when Christ came, it was complete, it was done, and it was better. And then Moses goes back up to the mountain to receive the written word of God on tablets of stone, written in stone, and what we have now is the new covenant, which was prophesied in Jeremiah, chapter 31, verses 33, and restated in Hebrews, chapter 10, verse 16, where he says that I will take my covenant. Let me read this verbatim. I'm sorry. This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law on their heart, and I will write it on their minds that the giving of the eternal Holy Spirit after Christ came to this earth was infinitely better than the stones that had the written words of God. The stones were there to remind the people for the people to continue to go back to, but the people forgot. But when you become a believer now in the context of the new covenant and the gospel, you, re- you receive something that will not let you go. It's the Holy Spirit. You have the Holy Spirit written on your heart. It's not on a stone. It's not in the Holy of Holies. And if you walk away, you feel it. Buster's been talking about this in the context of sin, that one of the marks of the believer is that when you sin, it it doesn't feel good. When you continue in sin, it it gnaws away at you. And then if you look at your life and you see continued unrepentant sin and it doesn't bother you, you should be afraid. You should be afraid that the Holy Spirit isn't just going to let it go that it's dirt, it's sin, it's infection and the holy spirit is there and will not leave you. You are guaranteed. You're sealed by the mark of God himself. The third person of the trinity is in you. In Colossians it says that the fullness of God that dwells in Christ is now in you. In you. And he will not let you go. It will be a mark until you reach the very presence of God, which is the better, fuller covenant. These are good. Th- this is good news. Hebrews 4, chapter 12 says that the word of God is living and it is active. And so when we have this holy word that is given to us, it's not written in stone, but it is alive. And this book physically could burn, but it can still be with us. That you can be by yourself, you can be in a bad place in life, you can be in a place of hurt and confusion or loneliness or or whatever, and you can still have the Holy Spirit who is alive and well in you. That that is a better Law, that is a better written word. It's not written on stone. It's written on your heart. So history reveals context, that all of these things, I'm glad we don't have to make a pilgrimage to Mount Sinai. I'm glad that we don't have to offer sacrifices. And, and if you've been in the church context for a while, you've heard things like that. All right? but, if, but this is building context. It's building context for what God has said. I, I made and kept promises physically to my physical people. But my plan was not complete then. That was a shadow. It was a, it was a foretaste. It was, an, it was an image of something better to come. And that something better is something that is all of those things, but with an eternal stamp on them. Not just a physical land, but an eternal land. Not just a, not just a specific people, but a spiritual people. Not just a written law on stone, but a, the presence of the third person of the Trinity in your life. That it is infinitely better and infinitely more eternal in nature. So understanding these things in the Old Testament gives us great context for, for, for loving the gospel and what it means to live for Christ daily in the context of our ups and our downs and our confusions that is going to happen to each and every one of us. May this be encouraging to you. Father, I thank you for your word, and I thank you f- that, that you don't just drop us in one point in history. Father, that that there is a righteous and holy and glorious past that leads us up to now. And, Father, that that this moment isn't all there is either. That there is a future and a hope and a home and and a trajectory in which we are going. This is not our home. I I thank you, Father, that you are not done. That there will be a completion that is met one day for those that are your children. I thank you for that and I praise you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.